Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger in this week's episode of the podcast number 204. North Korean hackers are suspected of targeting vaccine maker AstraZeneca. David Culver joins me now. David, what do we know about this? It appears, according to Reuters, that North Korean hackers tried to get some information from some of the staff working at AstraZeneca. So how did they do this? Well, according to Reuters, they use things like LinkedIn... Incidents like the solar winds hack have focused our attention on the threat posed by nation states like Russia and China as they look to steal sensitive government and private sector secrets. But in the vital healthcare sector, nation state actors are just one among many threats to the safety and security of networks, data, employees, and patients. In recent years, China's made a habit of targeting large healthcare insurers and healthcare providers in the U.S. as it seeks to build what some have described as a data lake covering U.S. residents that it can then mine for vital intelligence. Criminal ransomware groups have released their malicious wares on the networks of hospitals and healthcare networks, crippling their ability to deliver vital services to patients. And more recently, nation-state actors like North Korea, China, and Russia have gone fishing, that's fishing with a PH for information on cutting-edge vaccine research related to COVID-19. How is the U.S. government responding to this array of threats? In this episode of the podcast, we are bringing you an exclusive interview with Josh Corman, the chief strategist for healthcare and COVID on the COVID task force at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. In this interview, Josh and I talk about the scramble within CISA to secure a global vaccine supply chain in the midst of a global pandemic. To start off, I asked Josh to talk a little bit about CISA's unique role in the federal government as the lead cybersecurity agency and its role securing vaccine. Joshua Corman, Chief Strategist for Healthcare and COVID, CISA COVID Task Force at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Josh, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you again. Man, we've got so much to talk about. You are, uh, obviously, as your title suggests, in a uh, very busy role right now at the government's lead cybersecurity agency. Talk, Josh, just a little bit about when you came over to CISA and, you know, kind of what your remit is. Happy to. Uh, It's been a whirlwind. feels like it's been a couple of years already. As COVID hit the U.S., uh, I had... While we were at RSA, I was standing next to Director Krebs at the time and said that if this gets ugly, I'd be happy to give him the unfiltered version of things we studied on that congressional task force I did for healthcare industry cybersecurity. Kind of on, I anticipated that we'd see a a larger volume and variety of ransom attacks on hospitals from unscrupulous actors that don't really care that this is life and death than a once in a hundred year pandemic. 
couple weeks went by when we were all getting our arms wrapped around it. And, and I figured I'd give him a briefing and he called and he said, will you come serve the country for a year? We're, we're talking to Congress about they're passing a CARES Act for emergency COVID hires to bring domain experts into federal agencies to assist with this novel pandemic. At the time, the mission was essentially what CISA was calling Project Taken, like from the Liam Neeson movies, the idea of can we help secure the response for healthcare in the U.S. to try to flatten the curve and avoid overwhelming hospitals so that they deliver patient care and and maybe uh, not become overwhelmed. This was mostly economic adversaries against hospital and healthcare delivery. Then they shifted as well to healthcare supply chains like PPEs, ventilators, and the like. And then the also the notion of imposing costs on the adversaries across the whole of government. And that's when you saw a lot of partnerships with folks like the CTI League working with government to identify and take down bot and infrastructure. As we onboarded me, the nation used a whole of government approach to add Operation Warp Speed, which was HHS, DOD, FBI, CISA, and the like. And CISA plays a key role in that. And that mission was really to accelerate the development and distribution of vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics to accelerate the cure. So uh, massively multidisciplinary because that brought in different accidents and adversaries, right? Nation-state espionage on the R&D and clinical trials, disruptive and destructive malware on manufacturing, like we saw with NotPetya doing over a billion dollars of damage by accident to a large vaccine pharmaceutical manufacturer a couple of years ago, and even misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. So it is the most massively multidisciplinary task and challenge you can imagine at a time when uh, I think what Director Krebs really wanted was to draw upon A, people who have executive positions in the private sector and can speak the language of a general counsel or a CISO who may be reluctant to take help from the federal government. B, he wanted the hat of you know the hacker community. And third is uh, he really wanted some of the up-close, high, high-fidelity granular information we gleaned from that healthcare industry cybersecurity task force we did for Congress as part of CISA 2015 to make sure that we were delivering the right advice and the right fit for purpose things to help with these very different needs. So uh, it's a crazy journey. The COVID hires are uh, very multidisciplinary by design. We have an infectious disease expert that as a presidential innovation fellow we borrowed from NIH. We have a retired uh, emergency medicine physician who's run a couple hospitals as CEO. We have hackers from the hacker community like Bo Woods, who recently joined. We've got risk management professionals, supply chain management professionals, and I've had to either become or attract people like dry ice and commodities specialists when we get into cold chain, cold storage issues. So so first of all, it's probably useful talking just about CISA because it's a new agency, fairly new agency in its own right, and kind of the original mission of CISA and whether this type of activity, particularly related to, you know, medical device, you know, vaccine creation, distribution, um, were those things initially kind of on the radar for CISA as an agency or did COVID kind of force the government and your agency to uh, step into that? I'm really happy you asked because I think we're one of the least known and understood agencies as one of the newest ones, right? I think the next newest agency is the EPA from decades ago. So I, I think for policy wonks like myself, it, it's been clear how it was born within Department of Homeland Security, but then an MPPD, but then became its own agency recently. You know, where it fits in the pantheon of federal agencies and how the, the public can interface with it is is not very well understood. 
So in the before times, there wasn't a CISA. You had a sector-specific agency like an HHS for healthcare or tre- treasury for you know financial services. But CISA serves the, the 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors. There's all sorts of policy references to where we fit in the in the overall pantheon, but you know, one of them is kind of rooted in PPD 41 from the Obama administration. There's like a three-legged stool where for threat or threat actors, it's really like FBI law enforcement. For assets, vulnerabilities, uh, critic, digital critical infrastructure, it's really CISA. For intelligence, it's like DNI in the broader intelligence community. And then you sometimes, depending on the topic, will work with a sector-specific agency on their domain expertise. So to try to centralize hiring, training, service delivery, service capacity building, CISA you know, has a couple different functions we've kept carried over. So one of them is to protect federal agencies, but another is to make fit-for-purpose cyber and physical security products for these 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, one way someone put it is we're not law enforcement. We're not your regulator. We're the fire department. If your house is on fire, we're here to help you put it out. So there are safe harbors and protection clauses to encourage and destigmatize sharing malware, sharing cyber threat indicators so that we can better protect the sector you're in or even across the sectors. When we look at the cyber risk landscape around COVID-19 and the effort to get everybody in the country, everybody in the world vaccinated, what are like the major risks as you see it? You mentioned a few of them, you know, intellectual property theft, cybercrime, ransomware, but what what do you see out, out there as the risks facing COVID-19, you know, our efforts to, to overcome this pandemic? In the cybersecurity world, I think you've seen me present a few times with folks like David Etchu or in my CMU courses. I have an adversary-centric kind of way of describing threat. I map a who to a why to a what to a how. Even back during my research into Anonymous, that's kind of how we were spotting false flags, right? So there's an adversary class who has a motivational structure. Within that, they go after certain target prey or asset types within their dynamic range of capabilities who, why, what, how. And on that front, it really expresses itself differently who we're facing uh, based on what stage of the relay race we're in. So think of this as a relay race where you've got, at a minimum, three columns. One is the R&D and clinical trial stage. The second is the scaled production, fill and finish kind of stage. And the third is the distribution and administration stage. And the most concerning adversary classes manifest differently across that relay race. So when it was just hospitals and taken, it was largely economic adversaries. When we got to vaccine research, R&D and, and the like, and the intellectual property, you saw a lot of the normal espionage nation state players take interest, either for the R&D data or the clinical trial data integrity. As you get to scaled production, fill and finish, you know you also add economic adversaries who can benefit from a ransom to lock stuff up. And that may be accidentally destructive, uh, as we've seen in other cases in history like NotPetya. Manufacturing plants are not they can be quite fragile at times. So malicious intent is not a prerequisite to harm. There are some actors who are sowing misinformation, disinformation, malinformation to try to undermine confidence in the U.S., its competency in vaccines and the like, to sow dissent, to push national security interests and or to keep their opponents weak. Different things manifest at different stages. And even now in the, the cold chain and cold supply, it's you, you get a bunch of operational risks. So Murphy is, a, is quite the adversary here for Murphy's Law. Um, you know, we had at least a unified federal approach until it leaves the distribution centers. But once it goes to the last mile or rather the last thousand miles, in a lot of cases, each state is going to have different experiments and operational variants and different pluses and minuses. And the attack surface and operational variants is huge. So we're trying to dampen that through advice 
And in a great big hurry, I had to become an expert on dry ice and cold chain and attack surface reduction, uh, get your stuff off Shodan and, and other search engines so you don't have default passwords exposed on the internet. This is particularly because one, one of the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, which was the first one was approved, has to be kept at particularly cold temperatures in order to be preserved, not just refrigerated, but kind of super refrigerated. Ultra cold, minus Ultra 80 cold, Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. As we look back, I mean, you know, there have been obviously a lot of criticism of the way that the United States as a whole has responded to the virus, not a lot of coordination, just a lot of confusion, and obviously a lot of people dead. As you look back, have there been any tangible impacts from malicious uh, cyber activity, whether cyber criminal or uh, nation state uh, that we can point to and say, yep, this one, this one set us back a couple steps and, you know, we needed to, to adapt to it. Or has this been more, you know, hypothetical than actual? Of course, it was many things sometimes unknowable, but we can reasonably discuss a few areas. One that makes my blood boil as, as someone who's passionate about protecting folks is Healthcare capacity and healthcare delivery has already been strained and was already showing signs of weakness before the pandemic. You know, you you saw and read the report we did from the Congressional Task Force, right? Severe lack of security talent. Eighty-five percent of hospitals in the U.S. don't have a single security person on staff before the pandemic. You know, really old legacy OSs that were overconnected and fragile, you know, often flat, unsegmented networks. All the things we've discussed in the past. So the fact that there's already a shortage of beds and frontline healthcare workers to take care of COVID or even non-COVID conditions like car crashes, cancer treatments, and the like. The fact that we're already out of beds and suffering excess deaths, preventable harm on those conditions from that. The fact that there have been elevated ransom campaigns to hit many parts of U.S. healthcare delivery is infuriating. We had to issue a joint seal alert from ourselves, FBI, and HHS, backed by U.S. intelligence to warn the public in the month of October about concerted effort to disrupt healthcare delivery en masse across the U.S. And those have tangible impacts on human life. You saw some coverage of UVM down for a month. And it wasn't a single hospital, right? This is the public reporting. I think it was Perloth and company. New York Times, yeah. It was, um, you know, that... That outage is not a small hiccup or inconvenience. It's uh, degraded and denied patient care. If you can't do cancer chemotherapy treatments, you can't get your cancer results. You can't get a timely x-ray to see if your cancers come back. Like we already know from previous things you've heard about from me from the cavalry work that that New England Journal of Medicine article says, if you have a heart attack during a US marathon, you're more likely to die from that within 30 days. It was uh, that 4.4 minute extra ambulance ride around the marathoners like yourself. <laughs> Part of the whole contingency planning of hospitals in the U.S. is that, well, if we have a disruption, we will simply divert to other nearby facilities. But when every other nearby facility has zero beds left and is already strained, this is an area where adversary activity has absolutely negatively affected public safety, human life. And uh, we take it very seriously and we're doing everything we can to reduce that elective harm and elective outage. Yeah, well, and in fact, um, you know, there there have been reports. I mean, there was a report that came out of Germany, although I, I think that there are questions about that of, uh, you know, uh, somebody who was, you know, deferred from one tertiary care center to another one because of a ransomware outbreak may have may have died in transit. You know, the kind of the like you said, the delayed delayed care as a result of an outage because of uh, a cyber attack. 
So, I mean, these these were things that you were talking about in the hypothetical seven or eight years ago that now are quite actual, it seems to me. Yeah. And in that German example, people get very spun up about that. The woman's condition sounds like she would have died no matter what. But yeah, yeah. an yeah. extra 20 miles of ambulance ride, thanks to cyber disruption, is an unnecessary yeah. risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And a different patient, maybe who who didn't have a, a terminal diagnosis. You know, that could that's could you could certainly imagine how that could be the difference between life and death. Talk just a little bit about how what what is the point of the spear first? So, I mean, you said you know we're we're sort of not that we're not the police and we're not regulators for for these organizations, healthcare organizations that you know often have very distributed campuses and and entities that have very complex uh, software and hardware supply chains, medical devices, uh, increasingly you know kind of cloud based uh, uh, application providers. What what can CISA do for them, and how do you interact with these uh, organizations? So we have a very stratified approach to this. I developed something I call the ball bearings strategy. We already had quite a bit of heat and light around Operation Warp Speed. I think I have to call it the artist formerly known as Operation Warp Speed at this point. We're ramping <laughs> down the name, but we have it. You need have, a symbol, clearly. I mean, you yes. know. You... <laughs> uh, we're taking candidates for the symbol. Uh, so on that, we had a very, a very high touch one-to-one engagement to reach out to these uh, vaccine manufacturers and their key suppliers to give incredibly high levels of care, both for services on the truck and some net new products that we developed in a hurry with the intelligence community and the whole of government. And there's regular routine meetings to do cyber and physical and supply chain risk assessments with them. So those are the 30 or so entities. And that gets a tiger teams led by CISA across federal agencies. There's a significant amount of time and energy there. I drew from some of the work I do for software bill of materials and software supply chain risk over my career. And I remembered the ball bearings bombing strategy from World War II. So I said, what about these less obvious, unprotected, immature suppliers to Pfizer, to Moderna, to J&J, AstraZeneca, and the like? If they're disrupted, could that cause a multi-month delay in the distribution of vaccine? You know, these smaller, less obvious players. So using the national risk management functions, we identified, prioritized using, you know, subject matter experts and science-based supply chain principles you've seen me use to rank order who needs protection. And on those, we give them fit for purpose. Things like cyber hygiene is one of our vulnerability scanning products that, you know, it's like a like a free Nessus scan of your external IP addresses. And it might not sound important, but for someone who may have a very known vulnerability exploitable on a VPN or edge device that have been heavily exploited this year on these targets, that is useful. It also helps us get a, a view of the cohort to see if there's common trends of strengths and weaknesses. We added brand new things like an intelligence overwatch where we're watching out for adversary chatter on their entity names, domains, and IPs to give them early warning detection. Then when we engage and assess their current maturity level, we try to make fit-for-purpose adjustments for things left of boom, like red teaming or assessments or uh, other assisted service catalog items or other parts from other agencies that we can encourage and even recommendations towards private sector topics that they can get like virtual CISOs when they don't have one or ICS and OT things if they're in the manufacturing space. And then a ton of write-a-boom after it harm things like incident response, or if you think you've been compromised, threat hunting or malware analysis or some recover and respond capabilities. And my guess is a lot of these uh, suppliers to the to the pharmaceutical companies, probably not very large companies, they might have a very specialized product, and a, but it's not a particularly large company that produces it. Yeah. One of the things I'm most proud of is I fought really hard for this one obscure 
supplier to DNA and mRNA candidates, right? It's just a biological manufacturing company. And when we finally got engaged with them, they had three IT people, zero security people. And if they're disrupted, it would have a huge deleterious impact on, on many of the candidates. So when we engage someone like that, we have to give them something that's fit for their current appetite and skill level. Yeah. Was your hunch correct? In other words, when you start engaging with these companies, was there evidence that, in fact, uh, yeah, you know, the, the nation state actors or the more sophisticated cyber actors had, had already thought that thought and started poking around? Knock on wood, hopefully not. We called this kind of lead the target, a compliment to Operation Warp Speed, where we wanted to anticipate before we knew who the winners and losers were for the vaccine candidates, because adversaries are economic too, right? They don't have infinite resources. Uh, so we wanted to get to them, assist them, prepare them, instrument them so we could tell if adversaries come snooping around before we knew who the winners were. And I think we were proactive in a lot of key places. Yeah. Right. And and these are services that you're talking about that uh, larger companies, uh, you know, this kind of fingerprinting, kind of taking taking a snapshot of you from the outside, see how you look. I mean, these are very common in that, you know, amongst larger companies, you know, Security Scorecard or BitSight or those types of companies do that as just a service, but not so often for smaller companies. It's not something, especially if you don't have an IT security person on staff, that you would even know to do, right? Uh, do we have a Citrix uh, server exposed? You know, do we have uh, ports open that are going to, you know, leave us uh, vulnerable? Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, you may look at this service catalog on the CISA website and say, oh, I, I can see private sector comparables for those, maybe even superior ones. But partly to your point, these are taxpayer funded, they're for national critical infrastructure targets, but it's more the combinatory effect of some of them. You know, uh, this plus this plus that equals a, a, a greater thing. Cyber hygiene vulnerability scanning may not sound very impressive, but when we are seeing which of the targets in this very sensitive area have which vulnerabilities, we can tune some of the intelligence and analysis on the high side and on the unclassified side that we can see if there's any activity there, we can do a very rapid um, personalized response to the potential victim. So it's the it's not just knowing and helping them know things they could buy in the private sector. It's ongoing partnership to warn them of things that have happened to their peer group or may happen with a, with a lot more of a protection strategy. All voluntary. And some of these are just designed for the COVID crisis. They're not part of the, the steady state portfolio. But one of my jobs as well is kind of be a, an innovation officer and take some of these experiments and the successful one should probably become doctrine for the enduring mission of CISA. One of the thorniest issues in the last year with COVID has not necessarily been cyber attacks, but disinformation and misinformation circulating online, um, sometimes purposefully, sometimes just, uh, you know, rumors spread. Things are things are kind of crazy and people have crazy, you know, funny ideas get, have legs. But this has been a major issue with trying to direct the response to the pandemic. And I note the European Medical Agency just in the last couple of weeks has put out some warnings about adversaries who appear to have lifted some internal emails and so on, and then spread them around in an effort to kind of raise questions about the capabilities of the vaccine or the reliability of the vaccine. So these kind of info ops, whether they're inadvertent or not, uh, seem to be a big problem. Is that something that CISA can do anything about, has done anything about? It is a big problem. In our CISA COVID task force, we have several different disciplines and cells. One of them is borrowed from our national risk management functions. And we have to track these types of things in our analyst analysis products. So we are 
either directly or indirectly pulled into these often. Historically, for election security, you, you may recall that we hosted and ran uh, with, with partnerships, the rumor control on something like biology and vaccines. We are not the experts on biology and vaccination things. So we are assisting some of the other agencies on their similar efforts. And we transferred knowledge on all the things we learned from that effort. And we've done warm handoffs for some of the partnerships we had on that. It is a real challenge, though, because no matter how good a job we do protecting against elective delay in hospital care or vaccine production or cold chain distribution, uh, if the constraint is people aren't taking it quick enough or they don't have confidence in it, it undermines or at least diminishes many of those successes. And we, for the first time in human history, created a successful high-efficacy vaccine for coronavirus, and not just one, but several. So we did the really hard miracle part. Now we're stuck at- Trying to get people to get it in their arm, right? The logistics and the administration part. So it's something that is very high importance. There's uh, new ideas and new blood coming in through the new administration on this front. And one of the things I think people- need to factor is when we track these risks through our, our task force, we're not just looking at cyber and, and just physical, we're looking at biology as well. And now that some of these newer variants like the UK variant, which is somewhere between 30 and 70% more infectious and, and the South African variants, now that they're on US soil and they spread more quickly, we're kind of in a race condition in a foot race with can we push out the doses and get people to take them fast enough before we see much more aggressive spreading than we have to date. And uh, we have to take a holistic approach on this. And that's why we have so many COVID hires and so many pockets of expertise brought to bear on this, not just within CISA, but with CDC, with HHS, with Stanford, with different folks. It's uh, We want to solve the problem, not just our piece of the problem. And I think that is why CISA was kind of like the right kind of agency to be the glue on a lot of this before the pandemic. And we have, we have a lot of things we could improve for the next uh, crisis like this, but uh, there's a lot of very, very intelligent people doing this and we're going to need help from the outside as well. So as Krebs used to say, uh, whether you work with us or for us, we need to take public private partnerships up a notch and we need very diverse talent to help for a day, help for a week, help for a task force, or even maybe come work here for a bit. But um, this is some really hard stuff. This, You know, my tagline from the cavalry is this is where bits and bites meet flesh and blood. Well, for, for real here. Indeed. Okay, final question. And I'm going to this one, I'm going to I'm going to put a hat on top of my hat, which is my my secure repairs right to repair hat on, which is one of the issues that came up in the last year was around, I guess, what we'd basically refer to as availability around particularly respirators and, and, and those types of medical devices, some of which was due to constraints on servicing and repair that existed. And there was a you know, kind of grassroots project, Project Biomed, to you know, open source some of the documentation and so on to service and maintain you know, respirators and ventilators. Is CISA looking at at those availability issues, particularly as regards repair, but but do, is availability a concern, particularly in the context of a pandemic, that needs to be raised with some of the private sector partners, particularly around you know medical devices? Is this something that we need to be paying more attention to? So without weighing in on policy per se, part of our National Risk Management Center, part of our Cisco COVID Task Force, commodities analysis, supply chain risk analysis, supply chain constraints and prediction and forecasts we've been doing. Uh, yes, we tracked before some of these supply chain gaps manifested during and after. And 
that's a living, breathing product that we renew constantly. Part of my hat and my role, and I'm not the only one, is to also make after action report and policy recommendations. I'm not an expert on how government does that. So we've been making policy suggestions concurrent with operations, not just towards the end. And as the the inbound politicals and new secretaries and new White House come in and as they ask questions of do you need more authorities and more assistance? Is there ways are there ways we could help? You know, we have those hypotheses and those ideas ready. But I think as a broad comment, there are a lot of equities, right? Quality and trust and institutional trust and and availability and supply chain adaptation. In a lot of these cases, no matter what, whether it's dry ice production or PPE and ventilators or emergency authorizations, people are casting a wider net for the art of the possible to, to be, be sincerely considered. Final, final question. New administration in, the Biden administration put out a COVID-19 response plan that definitely mentioned cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is part of it. What does that mean for you and your remit? And uh, you know, kind of what should we be expecting as 2021 rolls on from you and colleagues at CISA? Well, at a minimum, it's uh, very good to see that this is a top-line priority for the inbound administration. It was a top priority for the last administration as well. They're going to bring very different styles and focus points, but I don't think we're going to have an interruption in top cover for interest. I'm being asked frequently what we could do more of differently. How can we help? So I think in some ways it's no change for us because every week is different than the week before as we go through this journey in this multi-legged relay race, even when states had a plan. They had to very quickly change the plan when things weren't working or we were having logistic problems. So every time there's a new idea, uh, we do dynamic risk analysis across a whole bunch of disciplines and we give readouts and reports and continue to try to make sure we marshal ideas and action to the things that matter most. And more importantly, we successful at predicting some of these constraints so that we don't make mistakes that need reacting to. So I... Any change introduces new risks, but we've anticipated and run scenarios for, for many of them. And anything that drives faster immunization, faster vaccination, and frees up the capacity. I mean, as you know, what's closest to my heart is the vaccines and everything are obviously very important. I think the thing that's really driving my actions is the sooner we can get hospitals back to steady state capacity where they have beds and healthy frontline workers, the sooner we can knock down the elective, avoidable, preventable excess deaths for conditions. Even if you're not afraid of COVID, you, you may get hurt, you may get sick, people in your care, your loved ones, and you want them to get timely, quality care. And I will feel much better when we can get to that point. Well, uh, the federal government's very lucky to have you, Josh, and, and I'm, I'm glad you're there. Couldn't think of somebody better to, to do the job you're doing. Um, is there anything that you wanted to say before we break? If you have the inkling that you might have a way to help, even from afar, even intermittently, there are so many topics that none of us can be experts on all of them. If there's risks or ideas, as many of them as possible brought to bear, and whether it's on this crisis or another, this is the, the kind of new government agency with an aesthetic and a mission that I think could attract either employment or assistance from non-traditional partners. Part of my worldview is we can be safer sooner together, right? Diverse, complementary skill sets. And this is not a spectator sport. If you care about cybersecurity and you care about public good and public safety, this is one of the places where the heat and light's happening. And if more of us lean in, it'll be higher efficacy. And if more of us keep at arm's length, it'll it'll be more like a traditional expectations. But uh, I think 
we have the opportunity to shape and sculpt this newest agency to be a very, very necessary tool for public safety and public good. Please come help. So shout out to the Security Ledger listenership. Picture Josh Corman pointing his finger, Uncle Sam like. We want, <laughs> you, should, we want you. You should see my beard right now. It's crazy long. <laughs> and, and I, I don't think necessarily in a good way. So, Josh Corman is a chief strategist for healthcare and COVID and on the COVID task force at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Mm-hmm.